Welcome to Delicious of History, a podcast about people you've never heard of who changed the world. My name is Fega, and I am one of your co-hosts. And my name is Mazal, and I am your other co-host. I'm a public historian and tour guide, and Mazal's my wife and a mixed media artist. Yeah. So, Mazal. Yes. I have been so excited to research this guy that we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. His name's the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. And we, we came across him in sort of a weird way a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, when you told me that's who you were reading a book about, I was like, isn't that the guy that we spent like an hour trying to decide if if Chevalier was like a name or a title? Yeah, so neither of us are French speakers. And I would not say French history is my forte. Certainly not mine. Yeah. And so I actually learned a lot about the nobility of France in this research. Uh, but I was I was writing a pitch for an article that never got picked up, but it was about Opera Philadelphia, that they're they're doing a show about the sh- – oh, not about. They're doing one of the Chevalier's operas. And I was like, I don't know how to say his name correctly <laughs> because his name is technically Joseph – I'm – I'm really ho- I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name right, so we're, I'm going to pick something and we're going to go with it. And out in the world, French speakers, I apologize if this is wrong. <laughs> uh, Joseph Boulogne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges. And I was like, which of these is his name? <laughs> and I now know the answer to that, but it was a little confusing when we were just using Wikipedia and trying to figure out. Oh, I was going on way more sites than Wikipedia. I was going on a deep dive and nothing was telling me any information. And there, I think, is a reason for that, and that is because people don't know who this guy was. So the thing that the my, my big sort of thing looking at the Chevalier that really stood out to me that really sort of, I, I sort of have as at the forefront of my mind as I was writing these notes and so forth, is the fact that minority people oftentimes have to be the best mm-hmm. to get recognition. And this is, this can be applied in all sorts of ways. If you're a woman in a male-dominated industry or a black person in like any industry. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I think we've both had this experience of having to be the absolute best at something or Mm-hmm. You're, like, worthless. Yeah. So I don't know if being Middle Eastern, you've had experiences like that. I know it's like you you kind of pass. I think, I think the thing that really makes me experience that more than anything is just being disabled. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's the obvious one, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so can you – would you be willing to, like, I don't know, say a couple things on what, on what that experience is? I mean, so I was – very high achieving academically all through grade school. But then I got to college and I moved into the dorms. And within a week of getting to college my very first year, I got some sort of virus, but the symptoms just never went away. And they continued to get worse. And I continued getting more symptoms, just really severe pain was just so fatigued and it just sort of continued. And it turns out it took me years, many years to get any sort of diagnosis that was accurate and not just, oh, you're just anxious. <laughs> As if I 
didn't know what anxiety felt like. And it turns out I have like several different autoimmune disorders and genetic conditions and and whatnot that just got triggered by this virus, which is a thing that happens for a lot of people with chronic illnesses. So that started at the beginning of my college career. But I very quickly learned that I was not healthy enough to do the things that I'd been doing before. And I suddenly was having to ask for all these accommodations, just trying to like get through. And all of a sudden, like everything flipped and I wasn't just being recognized just for doing what I was always doing. It was more, I, I had I had to fight for any recognition, which was a pretty stark change. Yeah, and I mean, I, I imagine this, it, it kind of pokes that like the, when you see those stories online that are like, look at this amazing disabled person. Oh my God, who I hate those stories. Overcame the odds, and if you're not that person. <laughs> this person in a wheelchair learned to walk up the stairs. Let's make a whole movie about them. Yeah, what I've observed as as your partner is then what tends to happen is if you aren't achieving that, mm-hmm. it's like, well, why aren't you? What, why are you letting your disabilities hold you back, Mazal? You could come with me. You could come with me. The reason I bring this up is because this person, Joseph Boulogne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, was that perfect guy. Mm-hmm. He was the best. He reminds me a little bit of when I was in college. We had This is back when Facebook groups were like just your college Facebook groups. Like they weren't beyond your college. I'm old. Uh, and we had a <laughs> Facebook group at my college that was, you, you can't hate so-and-so. That's what it was. And it was because she was so amazing and so perfect and straight A's. And she was also really nice. And everyone liked her because she was great. Mm-hmm. And now she's off like being awesome in, I don't know, somewhere, Indiana or something like that. This guy, the Chevalier, reminds me of, of that because he really was the best. And he still isn't remembered. And the reason why is is interesting, because he was very famous in his time. So Joseph Boulogne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, was born December 25th, 1745. He was a Christmas baby in Guadalupe, which is an archipelago in the Caribbean. It was then and still is part of the French Empire. So this is still part of France today. There's some disagreement regarding his parentage. I read one biography, and then I went and looked at some other ones, and they just swipe at each other. Like, this one biographer's really sure it's this one guy. The other one thinks this, <laughs> his father's this other guy. And they clearly hate each other <laughs> because they take swipes. It's wild. So there's two options. Some Mamma Mia thing. I've not actually seen Mamma Mia. <laughs> but I believe you. <laughs> so there's two options. One that seems the most seems the most plausible to me, but, like, who am I? What do I know? Is... A guy named Georges de Boulogne Saint-Georges. He was not a nobleman, although he eventually became one. He eventually became a gentleman of the king's chamber, which is as weird as it sounds. (laughs) But these were 
positions that could be given to people who were not of noble blood that the king wanted to elevate to the nobility. Mm-hmm. And it's like you would like hand the shirt to the king in the morning or something. It was this, we'll talk a little more about Versailles later. It was a wild place. So it was either him or this other guy. And I'm sure these are spelled differently. And I'm sure if you spoke French, you could say them differently, but that's not happening today. Pierre Boulogne Tavernier, I think, who was controller general of finance and his nobility dated back to the 15th century. They were like neighbors. Mm hmm. Um, in Guadalupe. So I don't know. And I think it's kind of fascinating that we don't know because like, I mean, he, he, his, he, his father was the reason why the Chevalier was able to achieve everything that he did. But we know who his mom was. His mom was a woman, uh, an enslaved African woman named Nanon, who was about 14 when she got pregnant. Oh my with gosh. Yeah. Um, the book I read was a little old and kind of indicated that she was, like, into it. And I was like, mm, she was 14 and enslaved. <laughs> Doesn't, yeah, no, no. I don't think we can make that judgment call that she was into it. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds unlikely. Yeah, that said, I want to make very clear that she could not consent before I say this. She could not consent. She was a child and she was enslaved. That said, what they were doing in Guadalupe was sugar, growing sugar. These were sugar Mm -hmm. plantations. And I talked a little bit about this in a previous episode, uh, my interview with Mac Little, talking Mm -hmm. about Barbados, which is, you know, same kind of neck of the woods. Uh, But that was a British colony and this was a French colony. But it's pretty much the same, honestly. It's just what language they were speaking. Because life on sugar plantations for the enslaved people was just brutally terrible. Mm -hmm. So to, to make sugar... You have these sugar stalks, and they can reach up to 20 feet high. Mm-hmm. And to cut them down, you have to use these machetes that are frequently, like, rusty because they've got, like, sugar juice on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the leaves, apparently, I didn't know this until I was writing these notes, the leaves of the sugar stalks can cut you. Ouch. Yeah, like, like slice you open or blind you. Oh, my um, god! Just the leaves. <laughs> and so once you get these things down... Once they're harvested, you have 24 hours to create sugar before it goes bad. Okay. And so what they do is they crush the stalks with these rollers that in those days would have been run by a windmill or with cattle or horses pulling them or something. And then that would be the juice would be boiled off into sugar. Mm -hmm. And this part of the process was also incredibly dangerous because with a windmill or some sort of pack or not pack that's not the right word some sort of animal running this machine it's just like in the industrial revolution when kids would get like their hands stuck in machines and stuff like Mm -hmm. it was really hard to stop it yeah so if you got some part of you stuck you were probably losing that part of your body yeah and people would get burned with the boiling the sugar water like it this was just really awful so Surprising no one, um, I didn't find a whole lot, anything, that was from Nanon's perspective. But I have to imagine that as terrible as it was for her to be assaulted, basically, mm-hmm. it did come with escaping the sugar plantation side mm-hmm. of things. Because she was brought in as a mistress, I guess, kind mm-hmm. of thing. And so uh, I'm sure... It was sort of a deal with the devil yeah, kind of situation. And we don't know that, but that's just based on what I know about enslavement in the Caribbean. 
and knowing that she would have wanted a better life for her child. Yeah. I have to imagine that that's a piece of a piece of it. Yeah. Like I'm sure she was very aware <laughs> what the other option was for her and her child. Yeah. So again, don't want to don't want to downplay that she was, you know, the victim of of the system. So one thing that was in the her child Joseph's favor was that his father for whatever reason decided he wanted Joseph to be acknowledged as his son. And this is which which potential father? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay. One of them or some other guy. Who knows? I think probably George Balloon is, is the most plausible in my mind. Mm-hmm. But And that's whose name he took. Right. This is part of why it's plausible because George Balloon had owned a plantation called Saint George. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why I think that's the most plausible option. It also just makes the most sense. But like again, not an expert. <laughs> I'll let yeah. the those two biographers snipe at each other. <laughs> uh but so he he was he was given his father's name, Saint Georges, or if it was the other guy, the name of the plantation next door. Again, I think George Balone is the most plausible one. Mm-hmm. And he was raised with all of the rights and privileges that could legally be provided to him by his father as a what was called uh, euphemistically a natural child. Natural uh-huh. child being a euphemistic way of saying like illegitimate or born out of wedlock or whatever. But there was a limit to what his father could provide for him because of the Code Noir, which was the French way of regulating relationships between black and white people throughout the French Empire. And this was, it it was, in the time, it was said to be this wonderful thing because it required (laughs) white people to, like, feed their enslaved people. Oh, gosh. Yeah. The bar is in hell. Um, But but it also allowed for things like brutal punishments for running away Mm -hmm. and things like that. Also, as a side thing, not related to any of this, but it also just included this little, like, paragraph that was like also we're expelling jews from all of the french territories this interesting place to slip it in i know right just like just while we're at it while we're here being racist yeah (laughs) let's just be anti-semitic too let's just give it make it a whole shit sandwich and so there were there were limits and so for example joseph could not get any sort of title that Mm -hmm. his father had okay had or did not had because we don't know which one it was uh, but eventually, they both had titles, and that is not something that Joseph could inherit because he was mm-hmm. black and because he was illegitimate. But if he was white and illegitimate, they might have been able to, like, finagle something, but he was black, so there was no... No finagling. No finagling. We know Joseph probably received violin lessons while in Guadalupe. This wasn't atypical because planters wanted to have their own versions of the, like, salon music performances that people were experiencing in France. And how you got that was having enslaved people who could play music for you. Mm -hmm. But we don't know for sure what that looked like. We do know that he, at the age of seven, was sent to a boarding school. This is 1753. He was sent to a boarding school in France where he continued his violin studies. And two years later in 1755, his mother and father joined him in France. There was this whole thing where his father was, like, accused of murder and... It involved this, like, drunken duel or something. It's a bizarre story that is not important. <laughs> As I told you when we were talking about this, this book was full of these, like, side 
things that I was like, why are you telling me this information? Um, (laughs) It's like, that's very interesting. Why is this here? At 13, he was enrolled in a private fencing academy run by, we're going to try more French names. I don't know why I did this to myself. Uh, (laughs) Texier de la Bossieres. We're going to go with that. My deepest apologies to the one French teacher I had. Uh, And thanks for being able to do any of this. And he was on his way to becoming France, France's most renowned fencing master. So Joseph went and lived with him, which was normal mm-hmm. at the time. And he, like, basically was raised up next to this fencing master's son. Mm-hmm. And we actually know quite a bit about that period of his life because the son actually wrote quite a bit about his experience growing up with uh, the Chevalier Saint-Georges. And presumably he continued violin lessons just based on his abilities later on. So was he learning fencing from this yes. guy? Okay. Yes, he was learning fencing. And he was also going to the Salet du Ménage, which was a riding school where, like, the royal family learned to ride. And okay. so somehow he was allowed to go to this riding school. So he's got fencing. He's got riding. And violin. Yeah, so he is being set up to be part of the nobility. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the education that a nobleman in France would receive. Uh-huh. Especially a member of the, like, sort of the, you know, petite no- nobility. These are these folks that are, like, not from old families who maybe received their nobility within 100 years, mm-hmm. and they have a lot to prove. So if they want their kid to be accepted, their kid has to be, like, really know how to do all the things. And Mm -hmm. that's what Joseph's being provided. It didn't take long for Joseph to demonstrate his immense talent with the sword. He was also super tall. So people Mm -hmm. noticed him wherever he went. I mean, he was a very tall black man dressed in noble attire. Mm -hmm. He drew attention. Also, apparently, he was very attractive and strong. But however, whatever talent, innate talent he had, which clearly he did because, like, I don't know that you could be as good at these things as he was without innate talent. Mm -hmm. But what really made him what he was was his devotion to patient and meticulous training with all of his crafts, but especially swordsmanship. There is a way of training in fencing that involves aiming at a target on a wall. Okay. And apparently this is like a dreaded thing by fencers. Like the way it was talked about reminded me of how I talk about doing long tone warm-ups as a musician (laughs) of like, you know it's good for you. You know you have to do it, but everyone hates it. Why? The fencing thing or the long tones? Because I can tell you why long tones are awful. (laughs) (laughs) The fencing. I don't know. It's hard, I guess. It's probably really boring. You're like poking a wall. (laughs) I mean, it's not like, you know, I I imagine you don't get into fencing because you want to like fence a wall. Is is it, I guess, like playing tennis and you bounce that against the wall a million times? I guess, kind of. Except there's like a target and you're trying to hit parts of the target. Okay. At least that's how it's done now. I had to Google this because I was like, I don't know what this means. He was always on that wall. Like even when he wasn't required to be. He was just constantly training Mm -hmm. on the wall until he was as fast and precise as he possibly could be. John Adams actually commented on this. Speaking about the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, he said he will hit the button, any button, on the coat or waistcoat of the greatest masters. He will hit a crown piece in the air with a pistol ball. He was also a very good marksman. Sounds impressive. Yes. 
Like I said, he was genuinely the best. It makes sense that he put so much devotion into this, besides the fact that he clearly enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. The sword was a really good way of moving up in French society. Mm -hmm. It was a good way of getting attention. This was a time of some class weirdness in France. So I mentioned Versailles. During the reign of Louis XIV, one of the things that Louis XIV did to try to prevent the old families from, like, rebelling against him or having too much power is he required that they stay at Versailles for some amount of the year and created this situation where everyone was competing against each other for the king's attention or for the most fashionable outfits or whatever. And it ended up bankrupting a lot okay. of these old families. So a lot of the really old families were cash poor. Okay. And at that same time, you've got these this sort of fledgling middle class of sorts, who are at least commoners, who are making wild amounts of money in the colonies. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going and starting sugar plantations, making a whole bunch of money and coming back to France. And they want to be brought into this noble society because they've got more money than these other people. Yeah. And so there's this stuff happening where, like, the old families are marrying, you know, like a son might marry a woman from a common family mm-hmm. because she's got a huge dowry. If you've read any Regency romance novels, <laughs> you're familiar <laughs> with this concept. And this is also where some of these commoners would get these sort of weird titles. So this is where the person who I personally think is probably Saint-Georges' father got his title in 1757. He became a gentleman of the king's chamber. And this was really like, when I say he was like handing a shirt to King Louis, like that's literally like these noble people would be like in the king's chamber holding the chamber pot or like Uh handing him his makeup or whatever. Like, Mm -hmm. And what year about is this? 1757 is when his father got that position. Okay. And that, as I said before, could not be conferred onto Joseph because of the Code Mm -hmm. Noir. Was he still a child or was he an adult? He was was like a teenager. Okay. So it was early enough in his life. Mm -hmm. This would have been his standard that his father had a title, assuming that's his father. While Saint-Georges was still a student, I think around 17, I was having troubles confirming the age. He was challenged by the fencing master, Alexandre Picard, from Rouen. Picard had mocked him as, and this is throughout this whole thing, I am using the term that he was a black man because under the Code Noir, your status was your mother's status. Right, So if your mother was enslaved, mm-hmm. you were enslaved. Unless, of course, your father, for whatever reason, decided to raise you up out of that. That is not the word people used for him at the time. Okay. The word they would have used is, it's, is mulatto. I'm just going to say it's mulatto. And that's just not a word that we use anymore. It would mm-hmm. have been important at the time to differentiate him from someone who didn't have any white ancestry. Mm-hmm. And it would have mattered as far as, like, during, like, the Haitian Revolution and stuff, there was a lot of stress between the people who had any white ancestry and those who did not. Mm-hmm. But I am not – I don't think it's it's the move to use that word regularly through this. Yeah. So when there is a quote, I will say it. But if it's not a quote, I'm not going to say it. Yeah. Um, so this is a quote is why I'm going this. So Picard mocked him as La Bossier's upstart mulatto. Those who spoke well of Joseph would call him the American. Joseph himself called himself Creole. Okay. Which, to our modern understandings of those words, neither of those things make sense. Yeah. Like, do you have anything <laughs> to do with the Americas? I mean, the Caribbean. Okay. Yeah, yeah. True. 
Yeah. Um, when I think of Creole, I tend to think of people in like Louisiana. Yeah, but that might just be my American yeah. perspective. So at any rate, according to the book I read, Joseph wasn't particularly inclined to participate in this challenge. So he was challenged by Picard, who is this fencing master, and Joseph didn't, apparently didn't really like high stakes contests, which like same Joseph, same. <laughs> but his father bribed him, okay. saying if he won, he would give him this like fancy horse and buggy. Well, that'll do it. (laughs) Yep. And so he participated and won. And I just, to me, this is just teens be teens, you know? (laughs) Ted said he'd get him a car. (laughs) So he could go ride his carriage around with all the other fancy people and just be fancy. Because let me tell you something. Chevalier de Saint-Georges was fancy. He was a fancy man. He was known for wearing lots of powder, which I'm sure had some weird colorism stuff going on. Um, but that was also the fashion mm-hmm. at the time. It's always at the height of fashion. Like this man, this man liked to look good and he was good at it. He was also convinced to go up against the Italian fencing master, Giuseppe Faldoni. After Faldoni defeated every other fencing master in Paris, San George was like, okay, fine. <laughs> I'll I'll fight you. So like Faldoni came to Paris and was like, I would like to compete against San George because I've heard you're amazing. And San George is like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. Which I understand because if he lost, it would be like, oh, well, that just proves it, you know. Yeah. Baldoni was like, fine, I'm going to go fence every other fencing master in Paris. And finally, Saint-Georges agreed to do it. Saint-Georges did lose. But afterwards, Baldoni still proclaimed Saint-Georges the finest swordsman in Europe, Mm -hmm. at least after him. So he's become famous before he's even graduated, such as it is from this fencing school. At 19, he leaves the fencing school and he becomes an officer in the court of Louis XV, giving him the title officially Le Chevalier. Thereafter, he would go by the name Le Le Chevalier de Saint-Georges, that day is an indication of nobility. Mm -hmm. So could he legally do that? Question mark. Did he do it anyway? Yes, he did. And you know what? (laughs) He got away with it. You know what, man? You do you. Like What a... What exactly does Chevalier mean? It's like a knight. Okay. Like like in English, I think it's the equivalent of saying like Sir whatever. Okay. Yeah. And then the Saint-Georges was taking the name of his father's plantation or the hill behind, depending on who you think his dad was. Again, I think one of these is more plausible. So he was an impressive sportsman in tons of different realms. My favorite was that he is he was famously swam the Seine River with one arm tied behind tied behind his back. That seems difficult. Yeah, um, I'm not going to do that. No. But it's, yeah, and, and I, I put this again, so I just really want to underline this, that a lot of fuss is made about his physical prowess because it was impressive. hmm But it is really important, I think, especially because he was a black man, to note that he was impressive in this way because he worked really hard. Yeah. Like, he constantly practiced. He constantly worked to improve his skills this mm-hmm. wasn't something that he just was born knowing yeah like he's i'm sure had like i said before some innate talent but that only gets you so far yeah so his father made sure that he and his mother were well cared for financially although the uh his legitimate daughter inherited the plantations but that that was actually really a boon for the, the chevalier de saint George had the freedom to 
go make waves in French society. He didn't have to worry about where his next meal was coming from because his dad was paying for it, basically. And he became a darling of this of the salons mm-hmm. and also was apparently an excellent dancer. Like I said, this guy is like, he's good at everything he touches. Mm-hmm. Like, he, incredible. So he, these salons, for people who are unfamiliar, this is before the French Revolution, the women of the upper classes would have these parties that were supposed to have, like, an intellectual flair to them. Mm-hmm. So you might invite Voltaire to come and say, say things, <laughs> say his Voltaire things, or you'd invite the Chevalier de Saint-Georges to play his violin or something like that. And it was, yeah, that was that was just... That that was the fashionable thing to do. And they would have discussions too, right? Yes. It, presumably. Like some salons were better than others. Mm-hmm. But the, the idea was supposed to be yeah. that there was supposed to be intellectual discussion happening. Yeah. I just, I just remember my 11th grade history teacher having us do we, – we did all throughout the year. This was like a class of like AP, AP American history maybe. I don't know. Something. AP Europe, I don't remember. But she she had us do all these mock salons like every single week. We had a we had a mock salon and we would have different topics that we had to debate and different things we had to do. That's cute. Yeah, it I was mean, great. I've said for years I want to host salons. I think it's a great idea. Mm-hmm. He was, as I said, the darling of the salon. He was also seen as quite the ladies' man. His nickname, uh which is a little problematic, was Don Don Juan Noir. Okay. Don Juan being the famous yeah. lover of, I don't even know, French, Spanish, something. I think it was Spanish. Yeah, I don't know. I've never actually read it. <laughs> there's a bunch of them. Yeah. My dad took a class on Don Juan, like an entire class. That's so cool. And he said that it basically all of the stories just sum up to like, will he get to a priest in time to confess or not? <laughs> So he was Don Juan Noir, and it was typical at that time for people to take these little gifts from their lovers, like a lock of hair, like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And there was one guy who famously like took rings, and like okay. when he died, they found like four thousand rings in his house or something. <laughs> because of this, the Chevalier was said to sleep on a pillow made from the locks of hair he had collected from all of his lovers. That's amazing. Yes, he. Definitely couldn't marry anyone of his social class, though. Mm-hmm. There was a story in one of the things I read that surmised that he did have one relationship when he was younger that he wanted to, you know, that was a, a very deep romantic relationship, and the family, like, freaked out, was like, absolutely not. <laughs> you are not marrying this guy. And she had to marry someone else. I don't know how much of that was based on actual evidence and how much of it is like presumed mm-hmm. this particular author took some liberties okay at times a few times it's like how do you know that <laughs> he definitely did have a couple of like really serious romantic relationships people he was really connected to over time he is said to have had a few illegitimate children of his own or mm-hmm. natural children as it were none of that is proven but there's some, there was one this one person who gave birth to a child that is suspected to maybe be the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, and that kid ended up being a very good violinist. So it's like, it doesn't prove anything. Yeah. <laughs> if, if only if we're at the age of, you know, ancestry 
Mari.com. Or Mari. <laughs> you know, they're like, you are the father. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 18th century Mari. And it also, this is another one of these things that's important to be careful with because he was definitely very tall, very attractive, very strong, and very charming. He was known mm-hmm. to be extremely charming. He knew how to move in society as someone who wasn't technically part of the nobility but was, like, hanging with the nobility. Like, he mm-hmm. he walked that line with perfection. Mm-hmm. However, it is always, when, when you read stuff like this, it is important to note that this also fills in, this also lines up with some racist tropes mm-hmm. about black men. Yes. And their relationships with white women. And I don't have an answer to that. I just, and this is, this is always when you're researching these people. Yeah. Is all you have is the stuff that people wrote down at the time. Mm-hmm. And that's always going to be colored. And the further back you go, the more obscure the quote unquote true history is. Depending on what you're trying to find out. But if you're trying to find out, did the Chevalier de Saint-Georges have a string of lovers? <laughs> That's not the easiest thing. I don't think you can really prove it one way or the other, unless he had a diary, which he didn't. So, Or if he did, we don't have it. But like I said, he was friendly. People liked him. He was popular. We don't know who he studied composition with, but we think it might have been Gosek and Loli, respectively. Or Gosek would be composition and Loli would be violin. Because they both dedicated works to him. Okay. But we don't know that for sure. At that time, French music was dominated by composers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And critics claimed that French music, especially French opera, was pedantic. And the music <laughs> in the story did not fit together. And as someone who studied music in college, let me say, yes. <laughs> that is accurate. <laughs> the reason you don't listen to a lot of French operas from that era, because they're bad. <laughs> Come at me, French people. This came, this started to change though, because an Italian group from the Neapolitan school came to Paris and performed their opera bouffe, which was like comic opera in Paris. And they would do a lot of virtuosity and things like that, and that became the fashion. And what what exactly do you mean by that? So virtuosity, like being able to play very fast or very high and like showing off your it's Okay, the virtuoso thing. Yeah, being a virtuoso, yeah. Yeah. People sometimes call them, when you're in opera, vocal fireworks. Mm -hmm. And examples of this would be, um, I remember the name, let me grab the name of this. There's an aria from La Traviata, which is like, which is that this, which is, La Traviata is later, but it's just, yeah, Sempre Libera, I think, if I'm remembering this correctly. from La Traviata by Giuseppe Verdi is a good example of vocal fireworks. Um, where it's just, the soprano is just like cruising up and down these scales. Mm-hmm. Going like to the top of her register, to the bottom of her register, like just just going bananas. <laughs> just showing off mm-hmm. what she can do. That became the fashion. Which, by the way, Jean-Jacques Rousseau took as like a personal affront to him. He was like, people just hate me. And that's why they're doing this. And it's like, doing what? Being interested in music that's different than what he wrote. Oh. It's like, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. (laughs) But, okay. So 17, so in this, in this environment, 1769, the Chevalier began playing violin with the concert des amateurs. Des amateurs? Which was actually considered one of the finest orchestras in France. So it was kind of like with the Olympics now where you have to be an amateur. Mm -hmm. This was a, an orchestra of amateurs, quote unquote, because they were all like, 
individually wealthy and didn't need to pull a salary and had the time to practice like four or five hours a day. It'd be amazing. Mm -hmm. Sounds nice. I know, right? I want that time. Uh, I mean, if I was in that class, but actually a lot of these people are not going to have a good time in about 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> but I don't. I want I want the like oh I don't I don't have to do you know go to a normal job I want to just play the violin for 5 hours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he then debuted as a soloist with that same group in 1772. This was the perfect moment for the Chevalier de Saint-Georges style because he was capable of great virtuosity. But as the public became a little bored with virtuosity because virtuosity with nothing else behind it is is boring. It scales. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he didn't depend on it. And I, I found this amazing quote from a, a content, like a today concert violinist named Jean Lemon with Toffel Music, a Baroque orchestra based in Toronto, that sums it up perfectly. So she said, you know, those are pieces that feature the violin, and the parts he wrote for the violin are very difficult. Sometimes you find with composers who are also performers or players that they write virtuosic things to show off and that when they try to write slow movements of music, there seems to be no depth. What I love about Saint-Georges' music is that as difficult and virtuosic as his fast pieces are, the slow ones are very, very tender and intimate. There is a very touching sadness to the slow parts that I find show that there was some depth to this guy. Mm -hmm. And listening to his music... It really shows. Um, I'm gonna drop some here when I edit. was also Marie Antoinette's music teacher for a time, though he was replaced when her childhood music teacher, Christoph Gluck, arrived from Austria. There was also some rumors about how close he and the queen were getting mm -hmm. to each other. So getting Saint-Georges sort of out of the way was sort of a political, politically good move, I guess, if you're Marie Antoinette. Mm -hmm. But to kind of make up for that, <laughs> he was given the job of leading the private theater of Madame de Montesson. Madame de Montesson was the wife of the Duc d'Orléans. The Duc d'Orléans was a prince of the blood, which meant he was directly related to the king. I think he was a cousin or something. So he's like as high up as you can get in the okay. French nobility without being king. Mm -hmm. And Madame de Montesson is not a duchess because the king did not like her. And would not allow her to marry the Duke de Orléans unless she agreed not to take the title. Okay. 
But she still had lots of money and power. And she had her own private theater that she put St. George in charge of. And he got, he, he was so successful <laughs> at her private theater that it was, it flourished more than the national theater. So like. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the Comédie Française and the Académie Royale de Musique, which is now known as the Paris Opera, they couldn't compete with Madame de Montesson's private theater. Wow. Yeah. So when a, oh, I forgot, I, I skimmed over this. I'm sorry. He also ran the concert to amateurs after 1773. Okay. And it grew, that's when it really grew into one of the finest organizations in Europe. So it was always the best musicians from the region. But under his, I was going to say under his baton, but they didn't use batons yet <laughs> in those years. <laughs> under his direction, it became one of the finest orchestras in all of Europe. And so when a position opened up to direct the struggling Paris opera in 1776, Saint-Georges' name was put forward as a mm -hmm. candidate to run the Paris opera. And the king was like, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it looks bad for the king, for his mm -hmm. opera. Because everything's his, right? Because it's yeah. France. So it's his opera to be so outshone by his cousin's wife who he hates. <laughs> like, it's not a good look if you're you know, the king. And so he was like, okay, we're going to put this guy in charge. And so they poached him from the other. Well, hang on. <laughs> so he, the king wants to give this to Saint-Georges, but a quartet of divas <laughs> threw a fit. They were probably worried about losing their jobs because they weren't actually very good. And Saint-Georges okay. was known for like hiring musicians based on their talent yeah. and not their title. Mm -hmm. wild concept. He was really about professionalism. He's actually, if you ever wondered why you have to dress up nicely when you perform in an orchestra, you can thank Saint-Georges. Because before that, people would wear whatever clothing was appropriate to their social class. And okay. he was like, this looks stupid. And he <laughs> made everyone dress like they were nobility when they performed. Mm -hmm. So why, why you have to wear concert black? Thanks, Saint-Georges. So these this quartet of divas said that they did not want to take orders from a black man. Mm -hmm. And they strongly objected. And so the king was in a position where he either had to bow to these divas or not. But after all this fuss that's being kicked up, it makes him look bad if he, like, really pushes to have this black man be in charge of Paris Opera because it brings up the question of, are there no white people who can fill this role? Mm-hmm. Which, of course, we know. Super racist. God forbid we bring that. Right. Right. But he was really the best guy for the job. So the king took what was actually an unusual move at the time. And he said, okay, either Saint-Georges can be in charge or nobody can be in charge. <laughs> and the Paris Opera chose nobody. Fun. So that happened. And this was really... The first time racism has stood directly in his way in his professional realm. Mm -hmm. No doubt the man experienced wild racism his entire life. Mm -hmm. But up to this point, it had always been in a social realm. Mm -hmm. But it hadn't held him back uh, professionally in any realm, either mm -hmm. as a swordsman or as a violinist. This was the first time that happened. And that was really his glass ceiling. Like, this yeah. was like this far, no further. No matter if you're the best. Because mm -hmm. if he achieves... So much. If he becomes the best music director in Europe, 
under a auspicious name like the Paris Opera, that brings into question the entire Code Noir. Because then if, if this black man can achieve that, what about all these black people toiling in the sugar plantations? Mm-hmm. What could they achieve given the same opportunities that he was given? And of course, we now know like, right, that's why yeah. you should not enslave people. Yeah. But from a white supremacist perspective, that's it's, a, yeah. it's scary. He's yeah. threatening your entire way of life. It's a box they don't want to open. Right. You know, what does it say about their entire system? <laughs> what it says is that it's stupid, but <laughs> they weren't coming forward with that one. Yeah, well, there are a lot of, a lot of mistakes were made. <laughs> yeah. So he was then, after this, given the position of Lieutenant de Chase. Chase, I think. Lieutenant de Chase, which is like Lieutenant of the Hunt for the Duc d'Orléans, which seems like his job was just to like hang out with the Duke while he went hunting. I'm sure there was more to it than that, but like that was all I could gather. It's also around this time he became a Mason. So he doesn't appear in any lodge tablets, Mm -hmm. but there's a ton of anecdotal evidence that he was a Mason. So he was like, there's several drawings of him wearing like three roses, which was the the symbol for that particular Masonic Lodge. He was, you know, he, he started this Masonic or- orchestra, which we'll talk about in a second, that you could only be a member of if you were a Mason and he was running it. But so if so if that anecdotal evidence is correct, he was probably the first person of mixed race become a ma- to become a Mason in France. Mm-hmm. In 1781, due to financial losses from the American Revolutionary War, the Amateurs Orchestra was disbanded, and that's when Saint-Georges started the concert De la Lodge Olympique, which was part of that Freemason Lodge. He also tried his hand at opera mm-hmm. at this time with mixed results. His first opera, Ernestine, was a complete flop. But people seem to agree that the problems were not with his part. So when you write an opera, it's not just one person. Mm-hmm. You have a librettist who like writes the words, and then you have the composer who writes the music. And for a long time, the librettist was actually considered the, the primary role like that if you look at like really 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 old scores like from like you know 1800 or whatever of things like the marriage of figaro or like mozart operas that we now just think of as mozart operas Mm -hmm. a lot of times mozart's name was second Mm -hmm. because librettist's name was first the librettist who i couldn't tell you who it was because i don't remember because we don't care about whoever that guy was (laughs) we care about mozart today the only one full opera remains and it's called the anonymous lover and it will be performed by opera philadelphia in 2025 So I'm looking forward to that. It was supposed to be performed this year, but because of financial issues, it got pushed back, which is a whole thing. Um, I'm glad I'm glad they're able to do it, though. Me too. That it wasn't just canceled altogether. Me too. Because that was a concern for a while. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the website says they're doing it in 2025. So hopefully that's real. This is also the time Mozart's traveling around Europe, including Paris. Now, I bring up Mozart because people always draw comparisons between Saint-Georges and Mozart. They were around the same age. Mozart was 10 years younger and died eight years sooner mm-hmm. than Saint-Georges. Mozart died super young. They were both musical giants in their time. And their works were often scheduled one after the other. So like on Monday, they'd have a Saint-Georges concerto. On Tuesday, they'd have a Mozart sonata mm-hmm. whatever. But weirdly, given this, that Mozart was in Paris and his works were being performed like by the same groups as Saint-Georges, 
Mozart never mentioned him in any of the stuff we have. Yeah. We actually have quite a bit of stuff that Mozart wrote. He wrote tons of letters home. We know that Mozart liked making jokes about farts (laughs) because that's what he wrote to his mother about on the reg. (laughs) But he never mentioned this guy who was like his his contemporary in so many ways. Do we know if they met? No, but it seems unlikely that they wouldn't have at least been at the same party at the same time. Yeah. And also Leopold, who was Mozart's dad, he was pushing Mozart to have to to try to get his works played by this amateur orchestra. Mm-hmm. And Mozart just wouldn't do it. If it was just that Mozart was kind of a mess, <laughs> so, like, it's possible that he was just, like, never got around to it. But given that he never mentioned Saint-Georges, and then he never did this thing that would have made him... He, he was always financially struggling. Mozart always had problems with money. So, like, having his works performed by the amateur orchestra would have been huge mm-hmm. for him. And he refused to do it. This mm-hmm. is when Saint-Georges was in charge. Mm-hmm. So, was Mozart super racist? I don't know. Evidence suggests yes, because later on in Mozart's life, he wrote an opera called The Magic Flute, and there is a character in that called Monostatos, who is explicitly black, like it's in the libretto that he is black, Mm -hmm. and he is super evil. Like, like other characters, like the Queen of the Night, she's also pretty evil, but like, Mm -hmm. there's some level of like, you can kind of understand where she's coming from. He's just evil. Yeah. There's unredeemable. So, Mozart, super racist, turns out. Shocking no one, I'm sure. So, Saint-Georges, at this point, travels back and forth from London a few times. He, at around this time, is starting to have to, like, make his own money, depending on who you think his dad was. The reasons mm-hmm. for that are different. But nonetheless, he had to actually make his money from his music and from his swordplay. Mm-hmm. And so... So, so he was being funded by his dad before that yes why did that stop well depends so one of one dad possibility died the other dad possibility um would have been like ruined in the financial crisis that was happening okay which one we don't know but we do know is that he had to start fending for himself Mm -hmm. and so he goes to london a few times where he like super lives the high life and puts himself under a lot of financial stress but he's doing it to, like, make friends. Like, he was buying people, like, buying the table wine, you know, things like that. So he he really likes spending his money on other people. Mm-hmm. And one of the most notable fights he did while he was in London was fighting the Chevalier de Aon. And for those who know French, it's spelled C-H-E-V-A-L-I-E-R-E. And I imagine this is the same in Spanish which Mazal speaks, it's the feminine. Okay. It's, it's So it's the chevalier, but the feminine form of it. Uh-huh. Um, and that's because the chevalier de Aon was known to have lived both as a man and a woman over the course of his life. Mm-hmm. And the king gave him the title chevalier mm-hmm. on purpose. Uh, he was a spy. He was a diplomat. Stay tuned. He's going to be a future episode. I'm really excited. Nice. I had never heard of this guy, and I was like, oh, my God. Um, (laughs) And now he's been showing up all over my Facebook timeline, and I'm like, what is this? (laughs) Why is this suddenly happening? So he he fought 
this other chevalier, and there's this great drawing of it happening. And St. George, at some point around this time, was also introduced to the Philippe Duc d'Orléans. So he was the son of the Duc d'Orléans and then became the Duc d'Orléans. Okay. This is confusing. So the Duc d'Orléans that um, married the woman that the king hated, he dies. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, he was just old. Yeah. And his son, Philippe, becomes the Duc d'Orléans. Orléans. I'm trying real hard here, guys. This is really notable because Philippe was a strong supporter of the French Revolution. We're getting there. If you've been wondering when the guillotines are coming out, they're coming. Guillotines yeah. are coming. Uh, so Philippe was a big supporter. And that pissed Louis XVI off a lot. Because <laughs> his cousin was basically here in court being like, Liberté, égalité, fraternité. And then the king's like, what the fuck, dude? So the king kept forcing the Duc d'Orléans to, like, go out to his country estates and stuff. And it's mm -hmm. suggested that Saint-Georges might have been the person who was, like, sort of running messages back and forth. Okay. Between Philippe and other leaders of the revolution. Okay. Like, Philippe, like, there was some talk of making him king after the revolution. Like, mm -hmm. he was really, like, a big deal in the revolution. And Saint-Georges was still the lieutenant of the hunt, so... He had reason for having to go out and run around on horseback yeah. with the Duke. Yeah. He also acted as a link between the Duke and a newly formed but important group called the Society of Friends of Blacks, which sounds okay. weird in English. Yes. But that's what it translates to. And that group is exactly what it sounds like. It's just like, you know, an abolitionist, you know, equal rights for everyone group. So when Saint-Georges gets back to Paris... A war is brewing with Austria because of all this revolution stuff. We forget the revolution didn't go from, like, storming the Bastille to, like, chopping off Louis XVI's head in, like, a week. There was a lot of steps in between. Mm -hmm. And the king was still king for quite a bit of that. He just was gradually losing his power mm -hmm. until he lost his head. So Saint-Georges comes back to Paris, and he's among the first to join the National Guard in Lille, which is okay. a, a town in France near Austria, in support of the revolution. This is 1790. He served with distinction. He helped create a cavalry of black volunteers called, I'm going to try really hard, <laughs> Légion Franche de la Cavalerie des Américains et du Midi, also known as American Legion, or also known as Legion de Saint-Georges. Mm -hmm. And it was probably Europe's first non-white military group. Okay. He also wrote a pamphlet decrying radicalization of the revolution. Because we're getting close to the time when the revolution starts eating itself. Because there were a lot of people like Marat who were extremists. Mm -hmm. And cared more about, like, purity of, of philosophy mm -hmm. than, like, actually running a country. Yeah, we've seen that play over in history many times. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's come up a few times. So he wrote to that he wrote this pamphlet to moderate Jacobins, which he considered himself one. Quote from that, above all, let us hold fast together. Let us stay united. Let us not excite ourselves over goals that do not concern us or divide our ranks for interests that are alien to us. So we can also add good writer to his mm -hmm. list of accomplishments. Due to fear of royalists taking over, the revolution turned on his noble members in 1793. This actually wasn't a crazy thing. There had been an uprising within the army mm -hmm. for royalists. But going after 
the former nobility who were like fully on board with the revolution was really not the move. So for example, Philippe, he wasn't the Duc d'Orléans anymore. He renamed himself Philippe Egalité. And he was known for using his wealth to feed the people of Paris because, of course, mm-hmm. he had substantial wealth because he was, you know, the king's cousin. Well, he gets executed. Okay. So. Interesting choice. Yeah. And he's not alone. And because of his close relationship to Philippe, Saint-Georges, who by this time had dropped the de, the D-E in his name because that was denoted nobility. So now he's just. He's like, I don't want to. Saint-Georges. I don't want to be that anymore. Yeah. He's just, he's just Saint-Georges now. He came under suspicion. And. Incredibly, he managed to avoid punishment twice. So, like, usually this was a time when people were reporting each other left, right, and center. Mm-hmm. This was very, like, the way, at least Americans, we imagine, like, the KGB or whatever. Like, people are reporting their neighbors and kids are reporting their parents and, like, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And usually if you got reported, that was that was the end of, end of the road. You were going in prison at best. At worst, you're ending up at the guillotine. He avoided being thrown into prison twice. Wow. Yeah, um, which was nearly unheard of. This but impressive. Yeah, but eventually, third time's a charm. He is thrown in prison and stripped of all of his positions. Mm-hmm. After the downfall and execution of Robespierre, Saint-Georges was freed from prison, but he had a really tough time getting his command back in the National Guard. Mm-hmm. He did eventually get his position in the army back, but not long after that, the law, a law was passed that anyone not serving in the military on April 5th, 1795 would be discharged. But This was done because of concerns about royalist uprisings. So while Robespierre was done, the radicals were no longer in charge, the terror had ended, the revolution is still happening. We yeah. don't have a new king yet. Yeah. And the thing is, is he was out of prison by that date. But he didn't have his positions back because he was having a hard time getting his positions back. Yeah. Probably because he's black. Like, it just. Yeah. <laughs> so he lost his positions again. And this is this is the end of his military career. He's not able. He tries, but he's not able to rejoin. Mm-hmm. There's some theories that he went at this time to Saint-Dominique uh, to meet Toussaint Louverture, who was a prominent leader in the Haitian Revolution. Okay. We don't know for sure. If that's true or not. He did eventually return to music. Okay. Not surprisingly, because that was probably the only way he could make money. Yeah. He returns to music, and he's universally lauded. He's called the famous Chevalier Saint-Georges. Like, literally, like, every time people talk about him in papers and stuff, they call him the famous Chevalier Saint-Georges. That's so interesting. There's some debate among biographers if he spent his final years in poverty. Mm -hmm. To me, it sounds like... Not poverty like poverty, poverty, just like in comparison to a standard of living before the revolution, mm-hmm. it was considerably lower. Yeah. So he probably felt like he was in poverty, which is legit. 1799, he fell ill with a bladder infection. And according yeah. to the son of that fencing master from the beginning, Le Bossiere, mm-hmm. who remained a lifelong friend of Saint-Georges, he, Saint-Georges knew something was wrong, but he ignored it until gangrene set in. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. But they didn't have antibiotics, so what would they even do for that? I don't know. Pray over it? I, I don't know. I don't know what they were doing at those times. Yeah. Put on a tincture? I don't know. <laughs> Throw some herbs on it? Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, he got gangrene, and he died. Thankfully, Captain Nicholas Duhamel, who was an officer in the Legion Saint-Georges, was worried about Saint-Georges. 
like he hadn't heard from him in a while. Mm-hmm. So he went to his apartment and found him dying and alone. So he took him to his own apartment mm-hmm. where he cared for him until son George's death. He was 53. Wow. Yeah. Super young. So this begs the question that I made in the beginning, which is, why don't we remember this guy? And one might make the obvious, yeah, like, well, he was black and history is super racist and how it remembers things. Yeah. But it's actually more, it's actually more complicated than that. Because he was, like, really famous. Like, you cannot underestimate the level of fame this man had in mm-hmm. the music scene in France, in Europe. Yeah. And he was pretty universally beloved. Yeah. Like, people loved his stuff. His clarinet and bassoon concertos were played all over Europe. Some some groups, like the Concert Spiritual, I think is what it was called, played his clarinet concerto, like, every Christmas. Like... Have you ever played any... No. Faga's a Faga plays bassoon, I should say. No, um, when I read that he had a bassoon concerto, I got really excited and put my book down and picked up my phone to order it, and it has been lost. Oh, no. As has the clarinet concerto. Oh, no. As has most of his music. All that remains is the one opera, a couple arias from another opera, and a bunch of, like, violin concertos and stuff, which Mm -hmm. are all amazing. Um, I listened to some of them in preparation for this, and as a... As a musician, if you had played those for me and asked me, when do you think this was from? Mm -hmm. I would have given you a date 40, 50 years in the future from when they actually Mm -hmm. were. I mean, I I would have guessed that it was early Beethoven. Wow. And that's notable because Beethoven is generally identified in music history. I should say basic music history. I'm sure there's more complex music history out there. Like, the, like, I have a bachelor's degree in music and I took... Three music history classes, mu- version of music history. Beethoven is is identified as sort of the beginning of the Romantic movement, mm-hmm. where we go from these very like formal, staid um, pieces that are all about like balance and following the, the the form of like what a concerto is or whatever, to putting more focus on things like how are we feeling. And so this is what Beethoven's known mm-hmm. for, right? Is this very like tortured stuff. Mm-hmm. Son George was writing that stuff when Beethoven was in diapers. Wow. Yeah. So again, why don't we remember him? Because <laughs> history has made exceptions for people all the time. Yeah. And a lot of times, the reason we don't remember people of color or gay people or who ha- what have you in history is because nobody wrote down what they were doing. Mm-hmm. People wrote down what Son George was doing. Extensively, it sounds like. Yeah, like not as extensively as we should have given how sure. famous he was. But there's a lot of evidence around him of the stuff he did. There's multiple paintings. Not just anybody got a painting. Like, yeah. <laughs> you had to be really wealthy or really important. Mm-hmm. The answer is Napoleon. That guy. That guy. So for those who don't know. Before Hitler was Hitler, Napoleon was Hitler. If you wanted to express that someone was a dictator, had dictatorial tendencies, that they were taking your country in the wrong direction, you would call them a Napoleon. Mm -hmm. In the same way that now people would be like, he's like Hitler. It's the same same way people would use it. One of the, the reason that is pertinent here is during the French Revolution, Robespierre actually outlawed slavery in all of the French empire. So 
the newly freed enslaved people became full French citizens. Mm -hmm. And this is something France is very proud of. Now French people will tell you that, like, everybody in the French empire, they don't call it empire anymore, but, like, all the various French departments, I think is what they call it, these different islands and stuff that are still part of France are all equal citizens to people in France. And anybody who's a person of color in France will tell you it is not that simple. Yeah. (laughs) However, that's the, like, French people are really proud of the fact that they were among the first in Europe to outlaw slavery and things like that. Mm-hmm. Robespierre did that. But when Napoleon came to power, he was like, okay, we're, we're not doing that. And he reinstated slavery. And timing-wise, you have to realize that Napoleon is coming on up right as Saint-Georges' legacy should be established. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the establishment of legacy that for someone like him would happen like after he died in like the couple decades after so mm-hmm. are people still playing his music are people talking about him are they writing about him in, in histories of contemporary music that sort of mm-hmm. thing but because Napoleon took power and really like was very dictatorial and really slammed down on the rights of black people in France no one was gonna push that yeah so they just didn't do Saint George's music. And anytime that happens, people just get forgotten. Yeah. And that's why a lot of his music is missing. And even today, he's not played very often. Although that is starting to change. Because recently we've had in the music world a greater focus on non-white composers. About time. I know, right? Um, and so he's, he's coming up because he's... Fantastic. If only we had more of his work. I'm so sad that his bassoon concerto is not. I'm just, it just hurts me in my heart. (laughs) I want (laughs) to play it. And I think it's important to note that Napoleon's basically the reason for this. Because it shows how important world leaders can be in these, like, really seemingly mundane ways of, like, Imagine how much easier it might have been for black composers and musicians in the past, you know, 200 years. If everyone knew about Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Mm-hmm. How, I mean, you, you hear about how important, whatever one might think of President Obama as far as his policies, how important it was just to see somebody who was not white in the top spot. Yeah. Like, that's important. Very. I mean, it's the same reason why we're we're both Jewish, why, like, Jews get so excited when we find out somebody's Jewish. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, any, any, like, go to any, like, bat mitzvah, big Shabbos dinner, people would be like, oh, so-and-so, did you know he was Jewish? Like, this is a thing. And <laughs> it's because it's nice to see your yourself in people who are successful. Mm-hmm. And it helps smooth the way for people who come after that person. And it is just tragic that one man was able to stop that legacy in its tracks. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Thank you so much for telling me about him. I love talking about him. He's my new favorite. In the show notes, I'll put some links to his music. There is a movie that came out in, I think, 2020, 
too. Oh. Um, I haven't seen it because I didn't have time. But we'll it have looks, to watch it. It looks beautiful. Like just we're just really good at period dramas right now in this point <laughs> in, in movie history. So it's it's gorgeous. It's actually that's actually what reminded me of him because a TikTok came up that was like a little clip from the movie. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's a movie about him that has a wonderful soundtrack, and then there is a I will link the Tuffle Music their album of his works because it's also very good. Um, but there's other stuff out there. Okay, so thank you, all of you, so much for listening to Delicious of History. If you enjoyed yourself, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform you listen on. That makes a huge difference. It really, really makes a massive difference in how much the podcast is seen mm-hmm. on these different platforms. You know, the algorithms really take a look at that. Yes. And also, like, word of mouth. Huge. Huge. Yeah, tell us. Tell all your friends and family who you think might be interested in hearing take, about take this. Take your grandma's phone who doesn't know how to use it and just set it to auto-download. She won't notice. <laughs> um, <laughs> we are a weekly podcast. Next week, March 11th, will be another sidebar episode where we will talk about some current event and the historical significance around it. And then the Monday after that, March 18th, will be another biography episode. I don't know who it is yet because I've run out of runway. But it'll be great, I promise. Hi, hello, this is Editing Fega. I know who the next biography episode is going to be now. It's going to be on Frederick Huntington Douglas, who was an artist and curator who focused his career on the art of the indigenous people of Colorado. So join us for that. It'll be awesome. And thank you, as all. This is your first episode recording with us officially. And yeah. So happy to be working with you. You too. See what else I forgot? Um, to follow us and so forth, we head to our website, deliciousofhistory.com, no hyphens. That's where you can find all of our social media stuff. You can listen from there all that good stuff. And of course, a huge thank you to all of our Patreon members. We couldn't do this without you. Your support means so much to us. And now for an episode-relevant audio drop. Oh, now, who put you up to this? Myself, monsieur. (laughs) Pardon me. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I give you music featuring help. From a dark stranger. I assume you know this piece? Yes, monsieur. Well, I hope this won't be embarrassing for you. <laughs> <laughs>